There are going to be no timelines to speak of. There will be a, what there will be is a clear understanding of the elements of the book of Revelation. You're going to go away with a clear understanding of the symbolism of the book. And I'll talk about why I don't plan to use timelines later, what I believe is wrong with that approach. But today we're going to do an introduction coupled with mistakes that people have made in their interpretation of this letter so that we don't make those same mistakes. The book of Revelation is an apocalyptic writing, not to be confused with the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha are writings that weren't canonized as scripture like the book of the Maccabees. But the apocalyptic writings are different. The word apocalyptic comes from the word apocalypse. It's defined this way. One of the Jewish and Christian writings of 200 B.C. to 150 A.D. marked by pseudonymity, symbolic imagery, and the expectation of an eminent cosmic cataclysm in which God destroys the ruling powers of evil and raises the righteous to life in the messianic kingdom. Good definition. So it means to uncover or reveal. It has the same meaning as the title of the book, Revelation. When we look at the Greek word that Revelation comes from, it is the apocalypsis. And it means laying bare, a disclosure of truth, and things before unknown. And so understand that these apocalyptic writings are supposed to reveal mysteries. And you find that in these writings, the writers claim to have been given a vision of these mysteries of God by an angel. Or we could say we're getting a peek at the happenings that are veiled actually from this world. And that's exactly what the book of Revelation is. A book that reveals mysteries or hidden things which most find baffling. And I say that because the only thing that most get after reading the book of Revelation, particularly for the first time without any other study, is this overwhelming sense of confusion. They don't understand a thing. And so it didn't uncover a mystery, but it became a mystery. To most of us, it's a mystery because we don't understand the nature of these writings. And it's too bad because they had a great impact on the followers of Messiah in the first century and beyond. Revelation is one of many apocalyptic books which were written from a period of 200 B.C. to 150 A.D. So we have a period of like 350 to 400 years in which many of these types of manuscripts were written. Of all of the manuscripts written in this fashion, none become scripture with the sole exception of the book of Revelation. And the reason for this is most of the books of this time were not written by the person who the book bears its name, like the book of Enoch, was not written by Enoch. The other reason is their authors couldn't be established, and so they weren't canonized as scripture. Even though we know that the book of Jude quotes the book of Enoch, and so it was read by these first century believers, these first century followers of Messiah. What all of these books have in common is they speak of things to come. However, those things are veiled within the symbolism of the book. And we could say Revelation is a peek at future events, but those future events are veiled from the world. And while they speak of things to come, they also speak of past events. They speak of good and evil and Adonai's victory over evil. They often speak of a deliverer, the Messiah. However, most often he's not called the Messiah. 
The book of Revelation is all about the Redeemer. It mentions the Lamb of God over 30 times. It also mentions Messiah, but only 23 times. And let me give you an example of a reference to the Messiah from another of these writings, the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch says this in chapter 39, verse 6. And in that place mine eyes saw the elect one of righteousness and of faith, and righteousness shall prevail in his days, and the righteous and elect shall be without number before him forever and ever. And so here in the book of Enoch, we have very much the same thing that we're going to find in the book of Revelation. In Revelation, it speaks of the Lamb of God as the deliverer. Here in the book of Enoch, he is referred to as the elect one, both referring to the Messiah. And notice that Enoch says the righteous will be without number. Revelation speaks of a vast number that no one could count from every nation, tribe, peoples, and tongue. So let's look at one more of these. This one speaks of the resurrection. It says in Enoch 51, verse 1 and 2, it says, And in those days shall the earth also give back which has been entrusted to it. For in those days the elect one shall arise, and he shall choose the righteous and the holy from among them. For the day has drawn near that they should be saved. And so here we have the elect one again, referring to the Messiah. And what is he doing? He's judging between the righteous and the wicked. And what does Revelation speak of? It speaks of the Lamb of God opening the books, opening the book of life that contains a record of the righteous who are giving eternal life. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say that Enoch is scripture or that you should think of it in that way. But I'm trying to show that these apocalyptic books really have much the same themes, meanings, and often the same symbolism. And we can learn from them in much the same way we can learn from a modern commentary. But we have to remember that it is commentary. These truths and themes are cloaked in symbolism, and so understand by looking at the same symbolism in these other books, it can help us understand the symbolism of the book of Revelation. And so you might ask, how can that be that a book written 300 years before Revelation can have the same themes, some of the same truths, and the same symbolism? Well, they were written by men with the same knowledge of scriptures. As an example, we just went through the book of John. And as we all know, John is also the author of the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. In the book of John, we have many quotes from the Tanakh, from Scripture. And what we're going to find is revelation, like the Gospel of John, is full of references to the Tanakh. Revelation actually has more references to the Tanakh than any of the Messianic writings. The problem is, that Revelation has few actual quotes from the Tanakh, but Revelation has allusions referring to the Tanakh. As an example, if we look at the plague spoken of in the book of Revelation, like the plague of hail mixed with fire, water turned to blood and others, they're very much an allusion to the plagues of the book of Exodus. Here's another. If you go to chapter 12, we have a woman who gives birth to a male child. And the male child rules the nations. And the woman is an obvious reference to Israel. And the male child a reference to the Messiah. So let's look at what happens to the woman in chapter 12, verse 6. 
the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God so they might take care of her for 1260 days. And so here we have another reference, an obvious reference to the Exodus. When Israel fled into the wilderness and was taken care of by God, and notice, not a quote from the book of Exodus, but it's an escapable allusion to Exodus. And the point I'm trying to make is this. Whether or not Enoch and some of these others were actually given visions by God, as was John, the authors of those books are reading the same Tanakh. They are using the same images that are found in many of the writings of the prophets. The difference is this. Revelation is the actual word of God. Enoch, Jubilees, and the others weren't canonized as scripture. However, they use much the same symbolism, the same themes, and so we can learn from them like we would learn from any commentary. It also tells us that the symbolism in the book of Enoch and Revelation actually had meaning to the people they are written to. It had meaning to them. They knew these symbols. They knew what these symbols meant. But the problem is that meaning has been lost to us through the centuries. Think about this. Would Yeshua actually give a letter to those seven messianic communities if they couldn't understand what was being written, what sense would that make, right? So we have to understand that while this is a mystery to us, it was a book that must have made good sense to the first century hearers who in fact were blessed for hearing and obeying the book. Yeshua was not going to inspire John to write a letter that could not be understood by its recipients. The point being is that there's something missing in our understanding of the book that wasn't missing in the first century. And if the book was understandable for the first century generation of followers of the Messiah with so many allusions to the Tanakh, then it stands, if we're going to understand the book, we had better take time to learn the history of the first century and we'd better have a good understanding of the Tanakh. As an example, in looking at history, we have to remember that one of the historical events in the minds of these first century followers of Messiah and really all of our Jewish people is the Passover. And the Passover is a remembrance of the exodus from Egypt. The whole purpose of the Passover Seder is to remember and praise God for his deliverance from Egypt. The exodus was God's deliverance of his people and the judgments upon Pharaoh in Egypt. In the same way, Revelation is about the deliverance of God's people and the judgment of the rulers of this age, which tells us we ought to understand and take into account the Exodus. Just the word Revelation, or in Greek, apocalypsis, announces to the reader that this is a book that's going to communicate a message in symbols. And they were symbols that these first century Jewish contemporaries were familiar with. They understood the kinds of symbols in the book of Revelation. It's a mystery for us because we don't understand those symbols. And there's a good reason for that, which we'll cover in weeks to come. Something else, this type of writing goes back even farther. If you read books like Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel, you begin to realize they're very much the same type of writing in that they're filled with very similar symbolism. Let's look at something that clearly reveals the difference, say, between these writings and writings 
like in our Messianic writings, or even in the Torah, which are written without much symbolism. There's not a whole lot of symbolism in thou shalt not steal. Okay, let's look at something that clearly reveals a difference between these writings and the writings of our Messianic writings. Revelation is given to John by an angel. And he's taken or given a vision of heavenly things, spiritual things. We are not really looking at something we can understand because there's a whole other spiritual world that's veiled from us. And so because it's given by an angel, and angels are mentioned over 70 times in the book of Revelation, let's first take a look at an angel in the Torah, in the book of Genesis. We've just been going through this in the last few weeks in our Torah commentaries. But Genesis chapter 18, verse 2 says, When he lifted up his eyes to see, suddenly three men were standing right by him. And so Abraham is visited by three men. And after they eat, the men leave to go down to Sodom. And later we read in chapter 19, verse 1, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening while Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. And so these men are angels. And then the third one that is left speaking to Abraham is actually a pre-incarnate Messiah, Yeshua. And so we see the same thing this week in our Torah portion in the story of Jacob. He wrestles with a man on the banks of the Jabbok River. However, if we go to the book of Hosea, it tells us this about Jacob. He struggled with an angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. He was no man, but he was an angel. And the point being that if we read the Torah, for the most part, when we see an angel, what does it look like? A man. However, if we go to the prophets, we find something much different. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 says, In that year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So Isaiah has an experience with angels. He's taken to heaven and he's shown the throne of God. And it's so otherworldly that he really has a problem interpreting it for us. You have to understand that a seraph is an angel. Why would God give Isaiah a vision of an otherworldly angel? Well, there's something he wants us to understand about the angel, about God's throne, about God's kingdom. And it's veiled in these angels and they're calling to one another, holy, holy, holy. So let's look at one more, another easy one. When we think of the adversary of God, or what we call the devil, the adversary, Hasatan, what comes to our minds? Well, maybe the serpent in the garden, maybe Yeshua being confronted in the wilderness, but let's go to what Ezekiel describes him as. I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, you great monster lying among your streams. You say the Nile is mine. I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your streams stick to your scales. I will pull you out from among your streams with all the fish sticking to your scales. I will leave you in the desert. You and all the fish of your streams 
You will fall on the open field and not be gathered or picked up. I will give you as food to the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air. And so here we have the adversary of God and he's called Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he's also called a great monster lying among the streams with his hordes or his followers described as fish. And then it tells of their fate that they're left in the field to become food. Now this is scripture and we're familiar with it and no doubt you've heard commentary someplace or figured out for yourself that Pharaoh and the monster are the adversary of God. However, why Pharaoh? Why a monster? Why streams? Well, in the same way, these first century followers understood the symbolism of the book of Revelation. These are things that those followers of Yeshua in the first century understood and we can see that they understood if we look at the Targum's translation of this passage. And if you're not familiar with the Targum, I think most of you are, it was a translation into Aramaic. Aramaic was one of the languages spoken in Israel in the first century. And the Targum was read in the synagogues on the Sabbath day. It was not a literal translation, but it was filled with midrash, commentary, to help the people understand what was being written in the book. So let's see what the Targum on Ezekiel says. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm sending my wrath against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You who are like a great monster which dwells in the midst of the rivers, who said, Mine is the kingdom, and it's I who have conquered. I will put chains in your jaws, and I will slay your mighty rulers together with your valiant men, I will remove you from your kingdom. Your mighty rulers together with your valiant men shall be slain. I will banish you into the wilderness. You and all your mighty rulers, your carcass shall be flung in the open fields and you shall not be gathered in, nor shall you be buried. To the beasts of the earth and the birds of the sky, I have delivered you to be consumed. And so here in the Targum, we see that they plainly understood that Pharaoh referred to actually the ruler of this present evil age, God's adversary. And just as Pharaoh at the time of the Exodus was ruler of the then known world, they knew that the fish were his valiant men, his mighty rulers, those who followed him. Two things I want you to get out of this. First, anciently they understood the symbolism but also, Ezekiel is giving us a peek behind the veil, just like these apocalyptic books do. So while it's an unveiling, it's not one that's familiar without much study. If you read that for the first time, you wouldn't understand, would you? We're getting a peek into a spiritual world that's behind the events in our world. But we don't usually understand what we're seeing. There's a whole other spiritual world like that, and when John gets his revelation, it's an unveiling, uncovering these mysteries. It's a peek, not just into this world's future, but it's a peek into the future via the spiritual world. Things like beasts rising out of the sea, seas turning to blood are spiritual things that will manifest in this world. This kind of thing John is seeing, a world that is totally foreign to us, and while it's an unveiling, its unveiling is almost as confusing as not knowing. And that's the bad news. The good news is, 
we can get an understanding and even better news is that we have a leg up on others in history that have studied this book because we understand some of the elements of the book. We understand the temple. We've done studies on it. That's a must to understand the book of Revelation. We understand the feasts of the Lord. We've done studies on those. And the feasts are referred to over and over in the book of Revelation. The trumpet calls, the palm branches, the robes of white. We understand the Passover and the Exodus, which is a huge key to understanding the book of Revelation. We've read the book of Enoch and other books like it. We've done a study on the book of Enoch. And so we understand this type of literature and much of its symbolism. And if you haven't, I have, so I'll guide you through. But what I'm saying is that we're about to have a new understanding of the book of Revelation that we probably haven't had before. There's one other thing that defines apocalyptic literature. It always brings out, and this is important to remember, it always brings out the helplessness of God's people. They're helpless in the face of the troubles they're facing. And then they have a divine intervention by God on their behalf. The people of God are helpless to help themselves. The circumstances look bleak. And behold, Adonai delivers his people. Just as in the Exodus. Israel has the Reed Sea in front of them. They have Pharaoh's army coming up from behind them. Everything looks bleak. And behold, Adonai parts the sea. Israel is delivered. And Pharaoh and his army are drowned in the sea. That's the same thing we find in the book of Revelation. The deliverance of God's people. They were helpless to help themselves and God intervenes and the adversary is defeated and we usher in the messianic kingdom. The book of Enoch has the same themes as Revelation. It speaks much of the day of the Lord when God will intervene on behalf of his people. Good fighting evil. The book of Jubilees, the Sibylline Oracles and some of these others are all the same. Another feature of this type of literature is that it's usually given by angelic beings. The time of the happening of these things is never given. It just says in that day or the day of the wrath or the day of Adonai and so forth. Revelation is not given to set a time on these events as we're going to see later, but it's given to be a blessing to its readers and to those who obey. So here's the problem for us. The readers of these books, because they are filled with symbolism, which is understood by the people who it was written to, but the symbolism becomes vaguer and vaguer as time passes and you become less aware of that symbolism. Understand that by the intended symbolism, I'm meaning that the symbolic meaning was understood by the ones revelation was given to. That is where the study will be important. Because, and we're going to find out why in the next verse. We're going to read John 1 verse 4. It says, To the seven messianic communities in the province of Asia. We're reading a letter written to someone else. And while they may have understood the symbolism, we do not. You see, if you replace the intended symbolism with your own, you're going to have problems. And if you do not understand the symbols, it's only natural to try and fill in the blanks with your own imagination. We're going to go through a little of the history of the church as it began to interpret Revelation. 
and what happened to those who replaced the intended symbolism or interpreted the book for their time. And along the way, we're going to learn some valuable lessons for our study and what not to do. In looking at history, what we have coming out of the study of Revelation is often we have apocalyptic movements that get pretty far out and really usually end in disaster. Those who do not end in disaster experience some huge embarrassing mistakes. The point being is that we have to understand this book as if we were members of one of these churches in Asia, one of these messianic communities. And if you don't, you're going to misunderstand the book. And there are many who have misunderstood. Can anyone think of some movements that came out of the book of Revelation or these apocalyptic writings? Anybody? I can tell you a few. Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons. You'd be correct. How about Jonestown, British Israelism, replacement theology? They all have their roots in the misunderstanding of the book of Revelation. All of these movements took away the symbolic meanings from their first century Hebrew context and began submitting their own. And not only did they do that, but as we're going to see in a little while, tragically, they acted upon these beliefs. Before we look at some of these misunderstandings in the church, the next thing you have to understand about this type of literature is that it's born out of persecution. The people are being persecuted and they're crying out to God. They're looking for hope. Well, Revelation actually gives that hope because God intervenes and saves the day. And that is why there was such an influx of this type of writing from 300 B.C. to 150 A.D., Look at Israel during that time. The people are hopelessly trapped under Roman rule. During that time, the temple is destroyed. The persecution of Yeshua's followers begins during this time. Jewish people are dispersed from the land during this time. And that's why we see these writings really explode when Israel is being ruled by Rome and being hopelessly oppressed. Also, in the diaspora, after Israel is dispersed, again, they're hopelessly oppressed. The book of Revelation is written 25 or 26 years after the destruction of the temple and a partial dispersion of God's people from the land. Christians in Rome are coming under persecution. It's written while the people of God are under the rule of Domitian. And we find in the writings of Eusebius, as he quotes Another church father, he says, we will not, however, incur the risk of pronouncing positively as to the name of the Antichrist. For if it were necessary that his name should be distinctly revealed in this present time, it would have been announced by him who beheld the apocalyptic vision. For that was seen not very long time since, but almost in our day towards the ends of Domitian's rule. And so, Domitian is assassinated in 96 common era, A.D., but not before he expels John to Patmos. And so the letter's dated around 96 A.D. While we're looking at this persecution, there's something that we should understand about the book of Revelation. You'll notice that the word tribulation will come up in the book. 
In fact, you don't have to listen to many teachings about the book of Revelation to hear modern pastors refer to this entire period of time that the book of Revelation covers as the tribulation. How many have heard? Seven years of tribulation, right? Right? But is this what John thought when he wrote tribulation? If we read verse 9 of chapter 1, we might find out something else. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker with you in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Yeshua, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Yeshua. Evidently, John thought the time that he was living in was the tribulation. And if we look at Christian history, we can find out why. The church records that Emperor Domitian had John boiled in oil. And when he didn't die, he banished him to Patmos. I think that sounds like tribulation. Remember this also, that the time we live in right now and the time John lived in, according to eschatology, are one and the same. If we look at Jewish eschatology, we're still in the same age. This age is called the present evil age by Paul. And so this was a time of tribulation for John and the Christians of the day. Not just that, but as far back as John can remember, there has been tribulation in the form of anti-Semitism coming from the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and the Romans. You know, when we studied the book of Romans, what we found was that Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome because of a wave of anti-Semitism. And as the book of Romans is being written, Claudius has died. And the Jewish followers of Messiah are just returning to Rome. And what they're finding is that the Roman Christians are shunning them. In 70 common era, the temple was destroyed. Another wave of anti-Semitism swept across the Roman world. And then we have what we just read, Domitian, another wave. And if we look past John's day, we have the revolt of 135 common era, which brought another wave. This anti-Semitism was not limited to those who were Roman soldiers or pagans or whatever, but it eventually spread to the Roman church as well. By the end of the second century, the church was becoming increasingly anti-Semitic, and by the end of the fourth century, it was totally anti-Semitic. Let's look at the nature of this type of literature. First, it always has a dual order of things. Good and evil is the order. It has powers, the powers of good versus the powers of the adversary. Powers of God versus the power of the adversary. And so we have good beings and evil beings. Good messiahs and evil messiahs. Why do you suppose this is? Why do we have this in the book? Well, it's simple because that's the order of things. Yesterday, today, and right up to the messianic kingdom. And so we also have a dual age. That's represented by the present age or the present evil age, which is under the rule of the evil one. Again, Paul calls it simply the present evil age. And then we have an age or a day that's coming when God will intervene, defeat the evil one, and set up the messianic kingdom. That is what makes this book so important to the believers. It's why it was important to John. It gives hope no matter what the current circumstances, no matter how bleak it looks, we can trust that God is going to win in the end because we've read it in this book. 
Now, here's a feature of these books that will be extremely important to us as we look at Revelation. And one we will see through history has been ignored. We spoke of it before. Man is helpless to help himself. You can do nothing about the events that are going to unfold, but it will be a divine intervention that takes the day, that saves the people. In that day, he will vindicate his name and in the process, rescue his people. Now get this because this is important. A failure to understand this will be a major downfall for Christians throughout history. It's a major downfall today. There are Christians that believe that we can set up the kingdom of heaven today ourselves. There are those who feel they can fight God's battle in the natural and they hoard guns and supplies. You may remember some of you years ago, Y2K, all right? Messiah was going to come back, Y2K. People thought the kingdom was coming, Messiah was returning. They sold houses, they did crazy things. Well, Y2K was birthed out of a misunderstanding of the book of Revelation. You see, the real pain and tragedy of the book of Revelation came from not understanding this principle, that God is the one who's going to save the day. Your money, your hoarded food, your guns are not going to save the day. Now, before we move into chapter 1, I want to look at some of the men and women in history that have misunderstood the book of Revelation to their own demise so that we might see where they went wrong and we can avoid the same path. Let's look at a few things that happened to those who took the book to be a prophecy about the time in which they lived. Early church fathers erred in their interpretation of the book. They prophesied things that never materialized, such as Hippolytus prophesied that the world was going to end in A.D. 500. It didn't end. And this kind of thing persists today. We just talked about one of those, Y2K, right? About the 9th or 10th century, St. Hildegard of Begin, a woman who will lead many astray, was the first to interpret the beast of the book of Revelation with the Antichrist, or at least the first one that's recorded in that way. Remember, in the 10th century, the only ones reading the Bible are priests, nuns, and theologians. It had not been translated for the common folks yet, and this is her teaching. She taught that the source of the power of the Antichrist would be Judaism. She was an anti-Semite. And as you can imagine, with this false teaching, she started another wave of anti-Semitism, and many of our Jewish people lost their lives because of her teaching. And so again, we have our first lesson in interpreting the book. We have to remember as we read the book, the symbolic meaning has to be one that John and the seven churches or messianic communities would have understood. I don't think John would have ever thought that Judaism was a source of strength for the false messiah. Martin Luther, he looked at the book of Revelation and he made the mistake of interpreting it for his time as well. He was struggling with the Catholic Church. And so in his mind, the Pope became the Antichrist and Rome became Babylon. How many have heard that before? It persists to this day, right? It's been around since Martin Luther. Here's what else Martin Luther did that will unleash a misunderstanding of the book of Revelation. 
Martin Luther translates the Bible into German. And now the floodgates are open. Because you have all of these people reading the book of Revelation with no understanding of the festivals of God, no understanding of the book of Exodus, no understanding of the Tanakh, right? But before this, just a few select people could read it. And so we're going to get this outpouring of interpretations of the book of Revelation by men with little understanding. And so we get multitudes of people being led astray and multitudes of people being led to their deaths over misunderstanding of this book. Almost immediately, a follower of Luther's named Thomas Munster reads the book of Revelation. He gathers followers on his own and he led a revolt of political nature and it cost 6,000 lives. It was 6,000 of his followers because he had badly interpreted the book of Revelation for his time and then he acted on it. Big mistake. The next lesson This is a lesson for us in interpreting it for our times. You can't help but do it. I mean, I do it sometimes. The problem begins when you act on it. If you think Romans Babylon, while I think you're incorrect, it's still okay. It's not going to harm you unless you go try and burn it down. Then you're going to have a problem. You act on it. The lesson here is to remember the focus of the book And that is you are helpless to help yourself, but God is going to save the day. The Crusades, the same thing. They were going to take back the holy city from the Muslims because they thought it would begin the Messianic age. Sound familiar? Well, it should because there are many people today waiting for the Jewish people to expel the Muslims off the Temple Mount, build a temple, and usher in the Messianic age. If you move forward to 1607, you're going to find a group that leaves England for a new land. They're the Puritans. And they're looking, according to their writings, for a a new Jerusalem. They saw America as this new Israel, new Jerusalem. In 1630, John Winthrop wants to build Jerusalem in their new land. And he thought, by building this righteous kingdom in America, he would bring back Messiah. Here's a really interesting one and one you'll be familiar with because it happens all the time. But in 1765, the Stamp Act came to be seen by the colonists as the mark of the beast in Revelation. Sound familiar? Well, you may have noted that every time the government issues a new number, people cringe and call it the mark of the beast. During the American Revolution, they saw King George as the Antichrist. We had a group that saw not too long ago that was teaching Prince Charles was the Antichrist. Others thought various men throughout history were the Antichrist. In 1830, we have John Smith. He thinks Zion, Missouri is the new Zion, and from him come the Mormons. In 1840, we have a group of about 100,000 called the Millerites. And Miller, their leader, declared that Messiah would return between March 1841 and March 1844. Well, no Messiah in 1841 nor 1842, nor 1843. And so on the last year of this period, the Millerites were so confident that they went up on a hill and waited there because they were sure he was going to come. He didn't come. And so Miller said the obvious, oh, I made a mistake. And so what does he do? He sets another day to no avail. Messiah still didn't come. And they were all humiliated. And yet out of the Millerites come the Seventh-day Adventists. And they still to this day offer their interpretation of the book of Revelation. However, they've learned one valuable lesson. They don't put dates on things. 
Jehovah's Witnesses are also a group that interpreted the book of Revelation for their time. And they were setting dates all the way up to 1987 they were setting dates. But they've stopped now. And they were also what we call replacement theology and their interpretation of the book. They interpreted it to say that the Jehovah Witnesses were actually the 144,000 spoken of in the book of Revelation. And that worked fine, and it was a great way of evangelizing until their numbers increased over 144,000. Then it wasn't so wonderful anymore. Another lesson that we learn is we don't put dates on the things in the book of Revelation because that's not why it was written. Another very important mistake that we saw in our day, remember David Koresh, Waco, Texas. He also misread the book of Revelation, gathered weapons, and suffered the loss of life thinking that they had to take matters into their own hands. Which brings us right back to lesson two, not to interpret it for your time. And if you do think there's a possibility that these things are about to happen, don't act on it. Because as we see in Revelation, it's God who saves and delivers the people. So here's the point to all of this. All of these people had read the book, walked away with the wrong answers to the book, and sometimes with disastrous results. Sometimes, as in the case of the Millerites and Jehovah Witnesses, not what you would call disastrous results, but clearly embarrassing results. Amen? Now, with that understanding, let's go to the book of Revelation. And I want to read the opening statement because it's here in the opening statement that we get the reason for writing the letter. Verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Yeshua the Messiah, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God by the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah to everything he saw. And here it is. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and those who hear and keep what has been written in it for the time is near. Don't you love that word near? God has another understanding of that word near. We'll look at this closer next week because there's a lot more stuff in there that we need to understand. But if you've been to one of my studies before or one of my sermons, you've often heard me speak of this word blessed in the translation of the Hebrew word ashray. It's a word which means happiness, contentment, joyfulness, which is well and good. But when we see how it's used in the Tanakh, in Scripture, we begin to understand just how happy Psalm 89 says, Ashrei hayam yodei teruah Adonai bor panecha yehalachun. Blessed are those who know the sound of the shofar, who walk in the light of your presence, Adonai. They rejoice in your name all day long. They exalt in your righteousness, for you are their glory, their strength, and by your favor, you exalt our horn. This is about the last days. The word translated sound there is the Hebrew word teruah. And it's the sound of the shofar. The verse is actually speaking of the last trump that Paul speaks of. And it says, happy are those who know the sound of the shofar. Well, I guess they will be happy as they're resurrected to be with the king. Yeshua uses this word all throughout the Beatitudes. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed, ashray, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Again, those who inherit the kingdom are going to be very happy, content, and joyful. 
And this is the kind of happiness that this word conjures up. That is the kind of happiness that we are reading in this book when he said, blessed are those who read the words of this book. And so with that in mind, ask yourself something. We just went through some of the history of the people who have read this letter and those who heard this letter and took what they thought it was saying to heart and then acted on it. Were they joyous? Were they happy? Were they content? Those people read it, acted upon the words of the prophecy, but they weren't happy. They were all wrong about the book in their defense. What they saw in the world around them did line up with the words of this book. They saw the evil in the world that was described in this letter before their very eyes. The problem for them was there's always evil in the world. And evil always looks the same. And the scriptures tell us in Ecclesiastes 1.9, what has been will be again, what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. If there's anything of which one can say, look, this is something new, it was already here long ago. It was here before our time. You see, the thing you want to understand is things in this world happen over and over again. In the case of those we just spoke of, they saw the evil and took what they understood from the book and lived it out, acted on it. But were they blessed? How about Munster's followers? They were killed. I don't call that being blessed. How about the Millerites looking so foolish up on top of that hill? I don't call that blessed. I don't call that happy. So if you are to be blessed, happy, and content from this book, then there must be something that they missed. There are other modern-day interpreters that teach the day of the Lord is going to begin here or there, just like Y2K. Another one I remember said it was going to happen about five years in a row. <laughs> I'm not going to mention his name because he's still around. But they've been wrong, and they bring reproach on themselves, and I don't call that blessed. I don't call that happy and content. And yet the text clearly says if we read this book and we obey what it says, we're going to be blessed, happy, content. Well, that's what I hope to send everyone away with when we go through this book. I want to send you away with the understanding of this book as John would have understood it. Not to put dates and faces on the events of this book, but to place understanding of the events of this book, to read it with the intent that it was given so that we will be some of those who are blessed by this book. It was never given to place a date on the coming of Messiah, to lay out a specific timeline of events. If that was the intention, Yeshua could have done a much better job of uncovering the dates if that was his intent. But what he intended to do was to give hope to a troubled people. What he intended to do was bless his people. So if we see trouble in the world, we can have peace knowing that in the end, God is going to save the day and we need to keep that in mind as we study the book. Are there things that we need to act upon as we read the book of Revelation? Well, yes, there are. Remember what it said. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and those who hear and keep what has been written in it, for the time is near. There are things that we need to do, that we need to be sure that we're doing. And we're going to speak of them 
We're going to look at the admonition to the Messianic communities in chapters 2 and 3 and those are some of the things that we need to act upon. Those personal things in our lives so that we're ready for the day of revelation that revelation speaks of. Are there things that we don't want to act upon in this book? Well, yes, there are because one of the features of the book of Revelation is to show how helpless the people of God are in the face of what's happening to let them know that God is going to intervene and the day will be one for the people of God. And so that's the introduction. 